This is an Urbanarium City Talk. And this is Should I Stay or Should I Go? A show about Metro Vancouver's housing crisis. I'm Jenny Tan, just a regular person trying to make it in Metro Vancouver. On the podcast, I work out if I should stay living in my camping trailer or go somewhere else where I can afford to live. We acknowledge that Metro Vancouver is the unsurrendered traditional territory of many First Nations, including 10 local nations. The modern housing crisis has its roots in the colonization of Metro Vancouver and continues to displace Indigenous peoples. And on today's show, developer Tony Papajohn, president of Jameson Development Corporation, talks about why the biggest barrier to building the homes we need might be ourselves. Also, why housing in Metro Vancouver should be like a Montreal smoked meat sandwich. Tony Papajohn, so good to have you today. Nice to meet you. You know, I was pretty excited because when we said, okay, we need someone who builds multi-family like apartment buildings to talk to on this show. Two people said your name like right away. They didn't even have to think about it. And then so we got you on the show. Oh, popular. Two people out of the whole city. Popular. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some people in the city who don't like you too, but we don't have to get into it right from the start. Hey, you know, Baskin and Robbins has 31 flavors for a reason. Not everybody likes vanilla. <laughs> One of the only other things I know about you now is that you built the building that the bakery, Small Victory, That's is right. In. 15th and Granville. 15th and Granville. Yeah. And can you just tell me and tell the folks listening a little bit about yourself, who you are, why people think you're credible when it comes to building buildings? Well, I can't tell you what, why other people think things, but uh, I'm born in Vancouver, uh, lived in Vancouver my whole life, I never lived anywhere else but Vancouver. And I live at 15th and Granville now, and my whole life I've lived 15, 20 minutes from there. One generation of being in Vancouver, my parents came here from Greece uh, separately and met here uh, in the 40s and 50s. Tony, you're the president of Jameson Development Corporation. I am. There's a good story behind the name. It's my father's name, James, and uh, son is my brothers and I, and we work together. Can you run me through just a couple of buildings you've built? You've built that building that... Shaughnessy Mansions. Yeah, that's like a condo building with uh, commercial on the ground. Uh, we did a project called Sesame in uh, East Vancouver. Oh, I know someone Second in Renfrew. that building. We did a building downtown, mixed use, uh, retail um, office and uh, residential called Jameson House. We've got a couple under construction right now, one in East Vancouver near Broadway and Commercial, uh, rental building again with uh, MERP. Sounds like burp, but it's Great. it's not a burp. It's called MERP. It's a pilot program. 20% of the floor space uh, is dedicated to mid-market uh, incomes of thirty to 80000 per household. Uh, so these units are um, vacancy controlled. That means like when the tenant moves out and a new tenant takes off, the rent stays at the level it was with the previous tenant. This is fascinating. I'm starting to get a sense of why all these people suggested that you and I should talk. Okay, so Tony, I'm going to hit you up with the first big question, which is, well, 
What do you think is causing this housing crisis? Well, I'm not an economist. I'm not a statistician because everybody will try and tell you all these complicated reasons. But I noticed, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, uh, we, and it's continued, it hasn't got better, we would have an apartment for rent. And, you know, anywhere from 10, 12, 15 different potential tenants would show up for one unit for the open house or wow. to look at it. And they'd give you their application and you'd go through them and you'd see that, you know, 80% of them, you probably would have rented to them, actually raised the 85 or 80% to probably 95%. And I said, something's wrong with this. When I have one unit and 15 or 20 people show up and 18 of them, I would probably rent to them a unit if I had it available on the spot. So I could fill a lot of buildings up with that. So there's a problem here. We just don't have the available units in the locations where people want to live. And this is a problem that we've had in Vancouver for many, many years. I mean, I'm you know, almost 60 years old now, and I'm aware of this situation for 25, 30 years. It's just gotten worse. Generally, Vancouver is a pretty nice city. But one thing we haven't been doing well is providing for people to have diverse, inclusive, unique um, forms of housing available throughout the city. Um, there's been a big concentration uh, of rental being built, and usually they're on farther away from the core, farther away from people's work, farther away from places like UBC or other institutions where people uh, want to be. And then we have a transit issue, a commuting issue, and still a time issue. I think supply is the number one cause of affordability and um, um, allowing our city to grow at a, a pace that allows us to be a successful city. You know, I don't want enclaves of certain income range people or types of housing just stuck in one area. So many things I want to ask you about from all that, Tony. Maybe I'll start with this one. I just assumed that you'd be living in a single family home, you know, in Point Grey or in Kit somewhere. Well, I, I've been living in an apartment now. It's about uh, just under a thousand square feet, um, two bedroom apartment. The beautiful thing is it has a nice little roof deck, which gives me sort of a feeling of New York. I've been in this uh, apartment for about three years or a little bit more, and I really enjoy coming home from work um, and not taking my car again and walking the neighborhood and um, not having to worry about cutting the grass and uh, cleaning gutters and stuff like that. I like coming home, though, and uh, walking the neighborhood, knowing the neighborhood, knowing people in the neighborhood, and uh, not relying on um, a car and traffic and parking and all that kind of stuff. There's quite a few kids that live in our, our building, and uh, there's some older people, too, and there's everything else in between. 
you give up things to live in a smaller place, but you also gain a lot of things. So, you know, it allows people choices. So not everybody wants to live in an apartment. Not everybody wants to live in a single family house. But you should be able to do all those things in most of the neighborhoods in Vancouver if you choose to. I want to poke at this idea a little bit that all we need is, you know, build more homes and the prices will come down. We had SFU professor Andy Yan on the show and he's like, you know, like this whole thing about build more and the prices will come down. It's not necessarily true because housing is not like apples. It's not like you have more apples and then the price goes down because it's causing it's complicated. There's a financial system. People have to get mortgages. There's people invest in this. So is it really true that you just built more and the housing will come down? I'm not qualified to say if it's true or not. And Andy, you know, I respect what he does and stuff, but I'm not an economist. I'm not a statistician. But all I can tell you is um, right now we're not even – meeting demand. So there's a deficit in supply. And what the number is, is it five units? Is it 5,000? Is it 50,000? I'll leave to the people who are in that business. But one thing we need to understand is we don't have enough housing currently Mm -hmm. to meet the demand that we have. And if you ran a restaurant and every night you had 20, 25 people lining up outside, and you had 10 tables in your restaurant, I think soon you would say, hey, maybe we make it 15 or 20, or we expand a little bit. I've been hearing this word crisis for 25 or 30 years. In my world, uh, when you dial 911, it's a crisis, and you expect the ambulance or the police to be there in four or five minutes. And if they're not, you kind of panic. So for 25 or 30 years, we've been dialing 911, and no one's answered the phone. That's what's happened in our city. So doing nothing is not a solution. And unfortunately, a lot of the opposition to adding more housing to our city has convoluted the discussion, has used statistics and um, fear and selfishness, I'm going to say. A lot of it is driven by fear, fear of change and disruption. Um, I mean, I build buildings. I'm involved in that. That business, I don't like construction to happen right next door to me for two or three or four years and hammers banging and trucks pulling up. And um, But I understand that's part of the process of getting to a better city. You just think about even two hours a day, which would not be unreasonable for someone trying to get to a place like Dunbar or Point Grey from even – Boundary and yep. and Broadway. Yep. That's um, 10 hours a week of just traveling to and from work. Yep. They're not getting paid for that. Yep. What's that stopping them from doing in their life? We all want to live a better life. Yep. We don't just work because we're workaholics or we love our jobs. We work so we can take the weekends off and don't have to have a second job, so we can write poetry, uh, we can 
see friends. We can spend time with our kids. We can walk our dog. People need to have the freedom to choose. And yeah, maybe you have to live in a smaller place if you want to live closer to your work. But allow people to make that choice. Don't force them into one situation only. And that's the only option they have. Tony, what is stopping a developer like you from building more homes? There's a hundred things that could stop you. But a lot of the noise, I call it noise, and a lot of the deflection, a lot of the opposition, I, I said earlier, is based in fear. There's a lot of misinformation. There's We live now in a Twitter world, in a Facebook or whatever it's called now, and all these other things. Um, and information is transmitted quickly, whether it's real, founded in reality or not. People can do it anonymously, facelessly. If things are tweeted enough, people start to think it, there might be some truth to it. So there's a lot of opposition to change. You know what's funny, Tony, is that when I asked you what was the heart, what was the barrier, right? I thought you would say something like, it's the cost of land. But instead, the first thing you said was social media. Well, it's not just social media. Society is the barrier. Tony, spell this out for me. So I'm a, you can tell I'm not a developer, but say I had, I was going to put down money for a piece of land. I find a piece of land, mm -hmm. I put money down for it. And then, and then what? Is that city permitting stuff, what you're talking about? And the neighbors, the bit that's the hard bit? Well, I always hear the city getting blamed and the permitting process getting blamed. And um, would I like it to go faster? Yes. Would I like it to be... Uh, a smoother system, not up to me to decide that. You know, the city is the city, and we deal with that. What I don't appreciate is outside influences affecting the process. Mm -hmm. So think of the city as the rule book, mm -hmm. and it's the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. You read the rule book, you go, okay, that means we need to do this, then that, then this, and we should be okay. Yep. You start the process. It can take several years before you get to a public hearing. Right. Or a public input meeting. Right. And then you have people who start talking about things outside the rule, or they're questioning if the rules are being followed, or their interpretation of the rule is different. Um, and I call this alternative universe. <laughs> Give me a specific example, Tony. Like uh, something that came up recently and I see constantly is um, shadow analysis. I'm not a technical guy, but the architects went to school and they understand this and they read the analysis. And the city has parameters. Like if the building's X height, it casts a certain shadow, where does that shadow land? Wow. Is it on the street? Is it on the sidewalk? But then what happens is, many times, is uh, someone who's not in the shadow business. Right. So like Mr. Neighbor, Mr. Like three neighbor doors down. decides to okay. walk around the neighborhood and take a bunch of pictures. Wow. Okay. And paint a red building 
that he thinks that's the equivalent to your building or not. Whether it is or isn't, I don't know. But there's a team of departments at the city who do this for the city, and they're the gatekeepers. Somebody shows up with their own shadow analysis. Wow. This person has a lot of time. And shows their analysis, and they tell you why the city's analysis is wrong. Okay. So that's fine. He's allowed to do that. I take my hat off to them. Where I have a problem is when that's given credibility at all, basically throwing the city uh, mechanism mm. under the bus, so to speak. Mm. I can tell you the projects that I've worked on, the city planning department, the real estate services, the financial people are working for the city. They're not working for the developer. <laughs> they first and foremost make sure the rule book is being followed and that the city's interests are protected. And I think it's been disingenuous for many, many years and disrespectful of those professionals who are really, um, most of them are really, really good people and very experienced at what they do. And they are working for the interests of the city. Um, to be constantly questioned day in and day out, mm. constantly told to go back and re-study things. I think all those issues contribute to this red tape, mm. delay. What there needs to be is an accountability of many of these things mm that we keep going back to be redone project and project and project mm. when the rules exist. If you don't like the rules, then change the rules. You're saying that there is a rule book. Whether or not you agree the rule book doesn't matter. Whether or not city staff personally agree the rule book, everyone starts to enforce the rules. Just to implement the program they have in front of them. So on another topic, Tony... You know, something I hear people say about developers often is, you know, all well and good for developers. They want to keep building more so they can build more luxury one-bedroom studio apartments that sell for lots of money to people in Hong Kong or wherever. And what about the rest of us who want to have, you know, three-bedroom apartments for our families? You know, what would you say to someone like that? I think developers should be allowed to choose what they want to build. If someone wants to build luxury condos and small, that's fine. But if that's the more profitable and expedient and financeable and approvable development, and you're hindering other uh, types and forms of housing, then you have to incentivize those other ones to happen. So building rental Injecting affordability comes at a cost. The MERP program I was telling you about it has vacancy control component to it mm. and 20% of it. Try explaining that to your bank, but mm. that unit, 20 or 20% 20 of your building, mm. is going to be rented at starting rent, half of market. Right. <laughs> can only go up a point or two a year forever. Yeah. And, at, and see if they're really tripping over themselves to help you get a mortgage and finance that project. <laughs> when the other guy comes in the room and says, oh, we got this luxury condo. We're marketing it before we start construction. We're going to be 80% sold before we put a shovel in the ground. Right. And 
it completes in four years. Yeah. And you get all your money and I get all my money and here we go. Um, that looks like a better bet. Right. It's much more difficult to convince them, well, right. we're trying to build diverse housing in this yeah. neighborhood right. and offer workforce housing and non-market housing. It's a riskier venture for them, and it's definitely a riskier venture for the developer. Tony, if you were king of the world and you could wave your magic wand, what would you do about the housing crisis? Unfortunately, I think you'd have to wave the wand for quite a while uh, <laughs> to solve all the different issues. It's layers. I think the bottom line is uh, humans are resistive to change. Mm. People want things to stay the way they are. They're comfortable in their environment. Mm. They've done all right um, by the housing situation the way it is. Inflation and lack of supply has helped those people. So the people that argue that you know increasing supply mm. may not in, on its own decrease the price, maybe, but I can tell you the decrease in supply mm -hmm. and the constriction of allowing different types of housing have made single-family housing mm. very expensive. Tony, what can an average person do? about this whole housing crisis? Listen, I think, first of all, have an open mind. Hmm. Come to the table um, solution-driven. Hmm. Whether you're a business owner, mm -hmm. um, a renter, mm -hmm. uh, a resident of the city, uh, wherever you live in the city, is get engaged. Inform yourself. Educate yourself. Take other people's opinion. But do what we're supposed to do, what Plato and Socrates said. You know, be a critical thinker. Mm -hmm. uh, come up with your own uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. What's your goal, though? Is it a better city with more diversity, more inclusion, more choices? Or is it just keeping it the way it was the last 100 years? Because... If you want to keep it the last way it was the last hundred years, then we have what we have, mm. and nothing will happen. And young people will not live here, and families will choose to live farther away or in, in other places. And then businesses will have trouble hiring people because mm. they need different types of people for different types of companies. To me, that's not a healthy city. People talk about, oh, we want to stop people from immigrating here. We don't want people living here. We don't want people having a, mm -hmm. a house here and not living in it and stuff. Well, those aren't my um, issues to solve. Mm -hmm. But do we want a better city? Mm -hmm. How does that look? Let's sit down and talk about that. And let's find the common ground. And let's look for solutions, not just block people's ideas and make up mm. excuses. Because if we do nothing mm. and we keep kicking it down the road to the next council or some other time or when we have a plan and when we do this, to me, those are missed opportunities. Tony, my last question for you mm -hmm. today is, I know you have four daughters. Would you 
stay in Metro Vancouver? Do you think a daughter stay in Metro Get Vancouver, given our housing situation? Or do you think it's smarter to just go? Well, first of all, I'm born and raised in Vancouver. I've been here all my life and lived here all my life. I love the city. So I don't know where else I'd live. I've been many places. You know, I've been to Hawaii. I've been to Europe. They're great. Um, but, you know, after a week, 10 days, two weeks, I want to come home. I, I don't think I would go anywhere else. I, hopefully, I'm never forced to go live somewhere else. And as long as we're making some forward motion, mm. even a slug moves. Mm. But if we're not moving, then, you know, somebody on a bike, on a tricycle, in a baby buggy, in a car is going to squish you. <laughs> right? As long as you're moving, you're less likely to get squished. It feels like we've been getting squished the last 30 years to me. So a good city for me is like a great Jewish deli in Montreal. <laughs> and what they have is they have a thin slice of rye bread at the top. That's your upper uh, luxury housing. They have a thin slice of rye bread at the bottom. That's your government-assisted social housing. But they got a lot of smoked meat in the middle. And that's your 30,000 to 200,000 person. That's your middle class. Those are the people who pay the majority of your taxes, who eat in your restaurants, who shop in your stores, who commute and take transit. It's a great sandwich. It makes a great society. So I want to see a city where most of the people are doing okay. Most of the people think tomorrow is going to be better. Tony, I think that's a good place to end. You know, you really made me think today. Thank you very, very much. You're most welcome. Thanks for inviting me here today. And now, let's break down those ideas with architect Bruce Hayden. Well, I'm really glad you pestered Tony, what, three times to come on our podcast? He was, he was reluctant. I have huge respect for that. He likes to stay under the radar. And you bugged him even when he had COVID to come on the show. I bugged him even when he had COVID to come on the but show. But he came after, well after he was healed and his symptoms were gone, I just have to he say. He did, and we followed all the COVID safety protocols. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, um, what did we get out of this conversation with Tony? I, I find it really valuable to talk to people who are in the trenches and actually trying to build housing. This is a very important consideration because if you think about it from the perspective of a politician for a moment, the reality is that the people who are actually trying to build things will always be very small in number relative to the people mm. who are attached to the city staying the same way it is. The voters that want to live in new housing don't exist as voters yet. Whereas the people that are ex in existing neighborhoods all exist mm. and are visible to politicians. And in many cases, those are the people that actually want to stop change. You know, I think that's just a personal note about Tony. You know, I, I heard him so passionately talk about his apartment building and how he loves not having clean gutters and how he loves his rooftop deck. And I was like, wow, I'm starting to get sold on this idea of living in an apartment again. Like I told you, like, after the conversation with Heather, I'm like, I'm running out and buying a single family home, like the first one I can afford, right? And now I'm like, huh, maybe we should move back to an apartment somewhere. 
This is a super interesting thing because part of it is that we have in our culture still a, I'm actually going to call it a fantasy that the ideal way to live, the most morally superior, the most financially stable, the most responsible way to live in many cases is thought of as a single family home. One of the things Tony was great about, I think, is expressing was the importance of a diversity of housing and a diversity of housing within every neighborhood, which is a really important consideration. You know, the other thing that Tony and I talked about during our pre-interview chat earlier this week was he said to me, you know, like everyone needs different needs housing and people need different types of housing. Like folks on the street now who don't have homes. Like you got to build homes for them. You got to build homes for people who are making like 20 to 40K a year. Homes are like, you know, the 50 to 80K. And then, you know, you go up the things and you get to, like he said, kind of the top of the sandwich, right? Which is like the super high-end condos. You need homes for every type of income level. And these will be different types of homes. I actually think that even rental housing is sometimes seen as a kind of blot on the neighborhood. It's seen mm. as transitory and things like that. But the important thing that he says, which is something that, that people often forget, there's a lot of people who do care passionately about housing affordability that will say we should never build any expensive housing as well. Mm. The problem with that is if I am someone coming in to start a new well-paid tech job in Vancouver mm. and I can't find a great place to live, I'm going to end up end up bidding for that rental housing mm. or a new condo against people with much lower incomes. Mm. And the reality is I'm going to win. This is why we have to think of housing mm. being provided throughout. I would say we haven't done a good, as good a job at providing housing for middle income people as we have for providing luxury housing for the simple reason that luxury housing is more profitable to build. There's an ironclad economics about that. It was I really appreciated Tony walking through in this scenario of, of you going to a bank, right? I mean, you being like a developer going to a bank and laying out, hey, I've got this luxury condo project. I'm going to sell them all off. 80% of them will be sold before the shovel even hits the ground. Mm -hmm. And versus this like rental building project. And you're going to wait years to get the prof all of the profits off of that. I mean, if I were a bank, you know, like one is pretty slam dunk and the other one's not. I think really talking to Tony helped me sort of loosen my like grips on this illusion that all oh, developers just want to build luxury condos. I mean, I think the fact is that like, look, the system is set up so that it is easier to build a certain type over the other. And then I think it is an easy non-solution to just blame a developer as opposed to stepping back and saying, look at the financial incentives that banks are putting in front of them, not just incentives, but hurdles, and look at all the other hurdles. Let's say I own a single family house and and the, the city comes to me and says, we want you to sell your single family house at 20% below market. Would you say that that's an acceptable thing for the city to say? Right? <laughs> I'd be like, well, you know, be off. Exactly. It's the, it's kind of that simple. And so if the city wants you to sell your single family house at 20% below market, what are they going to offer you in exchange? Right. It's actually right. that simple. The other thing I think that's important that Tony was very articulate about in a thoughtful way is the way that people oppose housing often use um, kind of pixie the need dust. for more research. Yeah, pixie dust or pixie <laughs> dust. You know, it's like throwing sand in the wheels. You know... And, and I love the way, by the way, because I have to say this is absolutely my experience. People who are opposing a project will come in and say, we support housing in principle. Mm. We just don't support 
this type of housing here or we need something a little bit different. So, what he's talking about is largely often very articulate people who have absolutely benefited from a shortage of housing because they own their homes. One of these issues that people bring in and say, well, you know, it's not that we support housing, it's just that this is shadowing something in the wrong place. And so, what happens is that all of these little accumulated problems mm -hmm. just become a huge amount of grit in, in the way of getting housing built. Shadow analysis, those are two of the funniest words put together. It just like makes me chuckle. I guess maybe my last thought is, you know, I, I hear about Tony's personal experience, right? Or he comes home, you know, he just like walks around his neighborhood. He goes to a neighborhood restaurant. He says hi to people. And I think that's so, such a cute thing, right? And now, you know, after I, you know, we drove here from Maple Ridge this morning to get to the studio. Afterwards, we're going to have to drive back to Langley probably drive back to Vancouver again. We're going to spend a total of, I don't know, two, three hours in the car today. You know, that's a lot of just sitting around the car. And then just part of me now is a little, um, I think I accepted that as that this will probably be my life because I'm, you know, being priced out of Vancouver. Uh, but listening to Tony, right, I feel my acceptance ebbing away a little bit and sort of wishing that, you know, things could look a little different for me, right, and look a little different for other people. And that is my little sad note that I'm going to end on. <laughs> I think that's a lovely note to end on. <laughs> lovely our dispute, but let's end on that. And that was Tony Papajohn, president of Jameson Development Corporation. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to hit subscribe so you know when we drop our next episode. And tell us what you think. Email us at citytalk at urbanarium.org. That's citytalk at U-R-B-A-N-A-R-I-U-M dot org. I read every email. And thanks so much to our editorial advisor, Urbanarium board member and processing buddy, Bruce Hayden. Our production team is self-hired. Special thanks to Suman Candola. The music was composed by Yute Lee. Will Jackson designed our podcast art. I'm Jenny Tan, and you're listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Ciao!